as you know, I just vomited my whole life onto the computer. I don't know how you read through it. Welcome to You Should Write a Book About That. My name is Kim O'Hara. I'm an intuitive book coach at A Story Inside, and I'm interviewing fascinating people from all walks of life who have a story to tell. Do they have a book in them? Stick around and find out. Naomi Joseph is no slouch when it comes to education and career. With a master's of science in speech and language pathology from Columbia University, she works with children with feeding and swallowing disorders in New York City's Department of Education's District 75. But she also has suffered her whole lifetime with an often debilitating condition, binge eating. She's written the book that finally needed to be written about this condition from the girlfriend's point of view, the get honest about all the down and dirty of binge eating, and on top of it, from the perspective of a modern Orthodox Jew. Naomi, phew, my goodness. I mean, that's just a tiny taste of all that you are. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to be speaking to you. So binge eating, using food to soothe, mindless eating, pigging out, fighting the dark voice. Now, these are all some of the words you use in the book to describe this lifelong war. Yes, it's like you hear it, right? And you know, like, you know, instantly, you know, to find that, that, that description of battling that very gift that was given, I think, as you say, to nourish your best self, food. And you've battled binge eating your whole life. Just paint a picture for us of what that looked like for you. So binge eating for me has just been a part of my life since really since I was eight years old. And it almost becomes this part of you, this friend that you can rely on whenever the chips are down or you're just feeling low or you need to move on to something and you need to steady yourself. So just to give you a picture, and I, and I really want people listening to really understand what this is like. It's just you go into the kitchen. First of all, it's done in secret and usually standing in front of the refrigerator or at the kitchen counter, and it's putting together these high caloric foods and you can, and, and a lot of the times what you're eating is just not even um, attractive or tasty. And sometimes at the end, and it could last for 45 minutes, an hour, half hour, sometimes you don't even remember what happens. And then you just have all the evidence at the end where there's like all these wrappers and crumbs and you're like, did I eat that? And then it's just something that you use. It's a mechanism. It's a coping mechanism that you use to get through your life. And you almost go into, from what you're describing, like a fog. There's a frenzy, right? Put like maple syrup and Nutella on the powdered sugar donut pack, right? Yes. And yes. then later yes. you're like, what have I done? It's almost like you, the little kid turning around with like chocolate all over their face, right? Like you are that little kid still. Yes. And it is you are in a trance. I love how you described that. And, and, I, and I love the 
also what you said about you're like that little kid because all of these habits and coping mechanisms are really uh, defined and created in childhood. It's something that you learn and then you just don't unlearn them and then you just carry them through your whole life even if they're not serving you and even if you're at a place in your life when you can put in other strategies to get you through the difficult times in life, but it's just something that's never really talked about. Binge eating has always been such a shameful topic. It really is. And you've created your own phrase, binge and sprint, which is often mentioned in your book. Explain what that is. Okay. So um, binge and sprint is where you need the binge part comes first. The binge part is where you steady yourself. You're using food as fortitude. Like literally, it's cake as fortitude. So (laughs) let's say you have something that you have to do and you're uncomfortable with it or you're scared of it or um, it's just this big looming monster, whether it be a business meeting that you have to prepare for or a presentation or a conversation that you have to have or somewhere that you need to go to that you don't want to. So first, you have to binge to steady yourself using the cake as fortitude, and then you're ready to sprint to do your next thing that you have to do. So it sort of just steadies you. It's like, okay, I have to get myself together, and now I can go. But really, it's not really using the cake as fortitude, because what it does is it just numbs you. It, it numbs just your numbs feelings. you. Yeah. yeah, you're in a gluten fog. You're in a sugar coma. and <laughs> You just go. I'm never going to look at cake the same. And that's probably (laughs) okay because I don't need any more cake in my life at all. You're beautiful, Kim. (laughs) So we're talking about your past. And with you, that was your relationship with your father. And he ultimately, that relationship is what brought you to your knees. And then clarity on the use of binge and sprint to survive. And you talk in the book about his history and how that was just passed down to him. And then one day you saw him more compassionately. What happened? So I think um, what happens with anybody is that when you're growing up and you're a young child in your home, you really don't have choices. You just have to buck up, I guess, and just suck up what everybody else is dishing out. And everybody on this earth is really just doing the best that they can do with what they've been given and the Mm -hmm. tools that they have. They really are. If they knew better and they could do better, they would do better. And my dad had a, you know, like not an easy history growing up. And he did the best that he could with us, but he there was a lot of screaming. He grew up in a place where, you know, people, he was a child of, you know, going through the Depression and the, and the war and children were starving in Europe and people didn't talk about their feelings and his coping mechanism was screaming. He would just scream and that was very debilitating for me. And through it all, I didn't really understand that he loved me. 
Um, and then what happened was that, and this, he was he was in the hospital, and I was after my mom passed, and I was caring for him, and um, he st- <laughs> he had uh, a sort of an altercation with a, a roommate in the hospital, and he just started sc- he was screaming at him, and I just realized that the screaming really had nothing to do with me. That's just how he ran his life. It didn't have anything to do with me. It wasn't that I wasn't worthy. It wasn't that I wasn't special or good enough. It was just that that's how he ran his life. And I'm so grateful now. In the beginning, after my mom passed, you know, I had this tumultuous relationship with my dad growing up. And then all of a sudden, there I was, his caretaker. Um, And I'm so I was first resentful, but now I'm so grateful for it because being in that space, I really got to see who my dad was, and it opened my eyes, and I'm I'm so happy I could see him for who he is and not who I thought he was when I was a kid. I love that about you and your ability to be this wonderful caretaker, knowing what you said, growing up in really difficult emotional conditions that were just, you know, endemic of all the times being passed down. And it's, it's funny, like people sit us down, you know, at different various stages of our lives. And they say, you are not your parents. You are not what you were, they were, you know, you're different, you know, and we don't, we, we hear it when we hear it. Right. And for you, you had to go through this whole journey, which if you hadn't have gone through this whole journey of binge eating for many decades, you wouldn't be able to save so many people with your book, which I want to talk about. It's been an amazing ride. And so exciting. You came to me knowing nothing about writing memoir, knowing nothing about self-help narrative. Tell me about writing. Tell me about writing this book. What's it been like for you? So, um, as you know, in our first draft, I just vomited my whole life onto the computer. I don't know how you read through it. But um, with your guidance, a story emerged. And at first, I really, I just wanted to reach everybody. And so I was keeping my Jewishness um, from the book. But as we discussed, it was flat without it because I am who I am. And that's such a rich part of it. And I'm so happy that I end up sharing that because what's happening in my house on Sabbath or on Rosh Hashanah is the same thing that's happening in anybody else's house on Christmas or Sunday night dinner after church. We all have the same Aunt Mary that brings the same fruitcake. We all have the same cousin Georgette that's bringing the lasagna. And it's all about family dynamics. And everybody can relate, no matter what their holiday calendar looks like. So um, that was that was uh, a, an important was part really, to include, yeah. right? That was important to include, and also the focus on food. You know, kind of kind of blowing the lid on, you know, that there are other Orthodox Jewish women and men who could be suffering from this. And there is an astounding focus on so many, so many, right? I mean, you're going to reach all of them. I mean, one part of your book that stands out with me related to food and Judaism that, that was so, and it might not be Judaism. It might be like a particular, and you can explain this a little better, was the bicker 
Sholem room. Did I say that right? Oh my God. Am I getting my Yiddish better? <laughs> Bikor Cholem. It's actually Hebrew. <laughs> and, oh my God. Uh, <laughs> you're learning so many different languages, Kim. It's great. <laughs> Tell us about that place. That place. <laughs> so the Bikor Cholem room is in uh, most hospitals in large metropolitan areas where there are Jewish communities. And it's a room which is provided by a certain sect of Hasidim called Satmar. And boy, can these Satmar women cook. So um, it's a room that you can go to and it has, let's say you're in the hospital uh, visiting somebody for a while um, and you're there over a weekend. There's uh, prayer books and Sabbath candles, but there's food. And I always remember the first time I went into this Bikor Cholem room, you open the door and you're expecting like a few stale crackers that are kosher because there's nothing else to eat in the hospital because there's no kosher food. You open it. It is reminiscent when you open that door of opening the door to Willy Wonka's chocolate factory <laughs> in all its living technicolor and this smells and the foods and that you could just go berserk in that room. <laughs> so there I was, you know, when I was in this room a lot, taking care of my mom and then my dad afterward. And it is really just a place where you can literally binge. just binge over every, you know, latent childhood drama <laughs> that was never resolved. <laughs> while going through a difficult time which is always the perfect binge time right always I mean it's just so beautiful I mean you're talking about how we brought those themes in but you know they're just all spoke they are all part of your journey and you are one of the spunkiest happiest people I have ever met I mean I'm smiling this whole whole oh, podcast you. you know <laughs> and now that you see binge and sprint for what it is and that you don't use it anymore what are like three really good tips you can give for anybody that's listening you're going to give 36 of them in the book for the reader so that's amazing value but right now just three tips that you would give to anybody that's struggling with battling food in any way um, so, wow, just three. Okay. So <laughs> the first thing that I want to relate to anybody who does use food, um, to help them, I just want to say that there is no food in this world that exists that will ever make it better. So, and that's why I think a binge lasts so long because you're going from food to food and you're trying to find that just right food, but it doesn't exist in the world. So you just keep going and trying to find something that's going to make you feel better or satiate whatever it is that you're looking for, but it's never going to happen. So the time to stop is now. I think that's the first thing. Um, the second thing that I want to tell you anybody who's listening is that you are worthy, that you are a child of God. I'm sorry, I'm so emotional. And you, the fact that you are on this planet, that God in all his wisdom put you here, is just proof of your worthiness. Mm. And so you don't have to um, 
do anything that's not beneficial to your body. So you need to go get a mani-pedi and be a diva. <laughs> so that's, that's step number two, because that's why you were put on earth to enjoy all of it. And the third thing I want to say is that what, what my wish for you is, is to decide that there's no better time than now to start. You know, not tomorrow, no next weeking it, now. Binge over and just become the person that God meant for you to be on this earth. Oh, my God. Those are three amazing tips. Binge over. Binge you are over. such a blessing. You are going to bless so many people with million, like millions of people with your book and heal so many. And thank you so much for laboring to write it. Thank you. I, I feel like um, aside from from you and, and all the help that I've gotten writing this book, I really believe that God has spoken through me and um, that the purpose of writing this is to bring it to so many people that need it. And that's the goal. Thank you so much for being with us today, Naomi. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to You Should Write a Book About That. If you enjoyed our episode, tell a friend to listen, subscribe, and review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And a big shout out to our listeners on CastBox, where you can leave a comment and I will personally respond.